From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other experts to hear their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the political and global changes that the situation has warranted. This is 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to talk to Laura Albert, Professor of Industrial and Systems Engineering at UW-Madison about COVID-19 testing and tracing and the return of Major League Baseball. Professor Albert's research focuses on modeling and solving real-world discrete optimization problems with application to homeland security, disasters, emergency response, public safety, and healthcare. She's also interested in sports analytics, and with the start of Major League Baseball this week, we thought now would be a perfect time to talk about modeling COVID-19 cases and outcomes, testing and tracking, and how this all might work or not in Major League Baseball and professional and NCAA sports more generally. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Albert. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, To get us started today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what your research is about and what your teaching interests are? Sure. I describe myself as doing applied optimization, and my research studies how to manage risk in public sector systems by improving the design and operation of the systems. Um, So you mentioned some of the applications, emergency medical services, disaster response, critical infrastructure protection, um, and recently policing. And in terms of my research as a systems engineer, I study systems. And so my research focuses on decisions that are not made in isolation. And so we have these interconnected decisions that span people, processes, and infrastructure. And I don't make anything. I make systems run more efficiently um, by improved workflows, for example. And my research really does focus on making decisions. So it's very forward looking in that regard and you know, doing things differently and more cost effectively. And so the COVID-19 risks, they span people, processes and infrastructure. So it's right in my wheelhouse. And in terms of my interest in sports analytics, um, it's something that I've delved into a little bit more post-tenure. I've wanted to learn new things and it's been a fun way to explore some data-driven topics I use in my research. And also I can bring it into the the classroom a little bit and talk about how to rank sports teams using probability models um, that I teach. Try to be careful because some of my students think football is a completely different sport, but everybody understands wins and losses and how to to rank teams. And it's pretty exciting that you can rank football teams pretty well just using the numbers and data with a good methodology, of course, um, even if you don't know anything about football. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, all pretty awesome. So you're a sports fan. Do you have a particular team? Yes, I grew up outside of Chicago. So I have all the Chicago teams are my favorite teams, of course. And I think the 85 Bears is the best football team ever. And uh, so I get I get picked on a lot for that. And of course, I'm a huge Badger fan. Starting kind of broad. Understanding how to control and contain COVID risks have been a challenge from the start. What makes this virus such a challenge in that regard? Yeah, so a couple of things. First, we didn't really know that much about this virus six months ago, you know, which 
is uh, we've been living and breathing COVID-19 since then, but there's still a lot that we're learning versus if we have a really bad seasonal flu, there's a lot of you know, studies and knowledge and research that's been done in the past that informs us on day one. And what we do know is that it's transmitted pretty easily. You might've heard about the reproductive factor. It's much higher than the flu, which means it's much, it has some kind of inherent, um, something inherent about it that makes it so easily to be transmitted, particularly in indoor spaces. So we can control that, uh, the number of infections by changing our behavior. So this is the idea behind physical distancing, hand washing, wearing masks. Um, but it's a challenge, definitely, with this, with this virus. Uh, one of the other challenges is that it's a novel coronavirus, so nobody has immunity. We're all at risk. This makes it a little bit more challenging to deal with without having some kind of immunity in the community. And of course, exponential growth. Um, as somebody who understands math, I will say that exponential growth is a hard concept for even me to wrap my head around. Like I understand it, but then you have to sit down and really think about it because it's not very intuitive when we actually think about how this can spread and one infection becomes two, becomes four, and pretty soon, you know, it's thousands. Um, and so small changes in this transmission can easily overwhelm resources next month. It's sometimes hard to really connect the two um, without really sitting down and crunching some numbers. In your role in making all of our systems and infrastructure more efficient, how have you seen first responders like police and paramedics change some of their actions or change some of their procedures in order to better deal with the pandemic? Yeah, so the pandemic has come up a lot in my, my research. Um, definitely, if you look at the number of 911 calls placed, you saw that there was a, an immediate decrease, maybe more so in Madison because some of the students weren't here, but there was a sustained decrease in calls. And I'm not sure there was a sustained decrease in emergencies. So sometimes people have emergencies and they don't call, and that is not necessarily good. And we want people to get um, you know, help that they need, especially if it's um, a cardiac arrest or a serious fall that they should probably see a doctor. Um, there's been PPE challenges for all first responders and the strategic national stockpile released some of this to states and it was distributed mostly in the month of April. And, you know, if there's another, if this is a second wave, it really sustained, there might be uh, long-term challenges with agencies being able to get the PPE that they need. There've been improvements in how they use it, but it takes extra time to don the PPE, doff it and, for a lot of paramedics, they have to record a lot of data regarding what they did at the scene. Um, and then finally, when there's these surges in place, it can be very challenging to transport patients to the hospital. So if a hospital's near or at capacity, an ambulance might have to go to a more distant hospital and the transfer times at the hospital are much longer. So even though calls aren't up, sometimes the amount of work per call is way up uh, for these first responders. So they're busier than ever. Of course, there's a lot of um, mental health calls now with so much quarantining and isolation. Um, humans are not meant to be this this lonely. Yeah, all super fair. And I know you serve on the Wisconsin Emergency Medical Services Board. What has serving on that board been like during all this? What's well, really interesting because so many of our public services are really done at the local level. And so the state EMS board gives us uh, a better view of the trends going on in the states. 
um, you know, in all the agencies across the state and really understanding, you know, the PPE situation and what instructions are being given to agencies to uh, manage the risks and, you know, are the trends that certain agencies seen at the local level, are those, you know, um, being seen throughout the state. Um, so there's been a lot of guidance really on planning for surges, of course, looking at the numbers, but then also making sure that different service providers know the best information and the latest information regarding like how to clean PPE, for example. Um, there's a lot of things that they weren't doing six months ago that they need to do very effectively right now. Yeah, it must be super interesting to be in the midst of all that. Now, when you're looking at COVID models, there are so many different competing ones, for lack of a better word. In your view, how do you think different models and risk management plans are being presented in the media? What is your take on all that? Oh, sure. I really like looking at the models and the numbers. That's definitely right in my wheelhouse. Um, there's some things that are pretty common across both. I think everybody's trying to learn about um, the virus and how it can be transmitted. Some of the differences have to do with that piece about what we do differently to control the spread of infection. And they make different assumptions regarding how, you know, how frequently or how long somebody will socially isolate. Um, because what we do really can make a big difference. And as somebody who likes to design systems that do well with uncertainty, it's helpful to actually look at the different models and say, well, you know, if all the models agree that there's going to be a second wave, that tells you something. And if only some of them do, that still tells you some, that there's a lot of uncertainty in how things might play out. And that can be useful for planning. There's the models and the numbers are very useful in uh, their own regard. I'm going to pause there because I, I kind of forgot one of your other questions. Yeah, I was just about to ask, what is your take on how the media is presenting some of these models to the public or how, what is your take on how the media is disseminating information about COVID? I think the media is doing the best they can with disseminating the information, but I do think that there are some stories and some takeaways that are not getting across so well. Um, first, I will say that a lot of reporters that are writing stories about COVID-19 maybe don't normally write about healthcare. I see this a lot in when I'm asked to be an expert for a story about Major League Baseball. Usually they're writing about sports and not pandemics. Um, so sometimes these journalists in particular need experts to help fill in some of the gaps and the, the, their own knowledge gaps so they can transmit this. Um, second is, you know, I understand how forecasting works pretty well and that nobody can see the, the, the future with certainty. We don't have a crystal ball. And, and um, so being able to communicate this uncertainty that's here in, in the model doesn't mean the models are wrong, right? They're still actually rather useful and that's how they work. Um, but help having that um, uncertainty be part of the story, I don't think is something that's really conveyed um, too well. Um, and then finally, my main main source of criticism with the media is the, the mixed messages and not being really consistent with the facts. Um, there's so many often that these pictures 
associated with these articles about COVID-19 show pictures of people outside at the beach quite often more than six feet apart, but they give the impression that being outside is a major vector of virus transmission. And in general, it's not, it's really crowded indoor spaces that are poorly ventilated. Um, and unfortunately, it's pretty clear that that's leading to some misunderstanding about where the risk really is that in turn, you know, doesn't help all of us figure out how to manage risk in our personal lives too well. Um, but I'm gonna end on a positive because I'm an optimist. I've been really impressed with how frequently experts are being used in the news articles. I think, you know, UW-Madison is pretty typical in that where many professors here are appearing in news articles at record rates. And it's been really nice to see the public so thirsty for expertise and uh, the knowledge that we have. I think this is good for our knowledge to get out there and hopefully make a difference. Yeah, that is definitely a good silver lining to look to that like we're actually listening to experts now. And as an expert, when you're looking at these new spikes that we're seeing across the country, and especially here in Wisconsin, there still seems to be a lot of confusion about whether we should be focusing on the percentage of positive cases in various counties versus the total number of cases in a state. Can you help us understand some of the confusion surrounding some of the different measures of COVID? Oh, sure. I love looking at the numbers every day, I'll tell you. I wish that the numbers were a little bit better right now. Um, but I will say that it's hard to manage what you don't understand. And so those numbers and metrics really help us understand and ideally will help us focus on what needs our attention. Um, so that's really the goal there. And there's not really one metric that can encompass everything. Um, managing risk with a pandemic requires a multifaceted approach. It requires us doing many, many things well. And so looking at the different metrics and numbers um, serves a purpose. Now, not all numbers are created equal, of course. And the gating criteria and plans such as Badger Bounce Back maybe made sense in April, but maybe there are different metrics that make sense now because we're doing things differently. We're contact tracing now, whereas we weren't in March and April. But it's helpful to look at a few numbers. So you mentioned a couple of things, uh, a couple of different types of metrics. I will, a few that I find useful is, first of all, the over number of new cases diagnosed every day. Um, this is really helpful for us understanding you know, the risk that's out there in public. That's not all cases because somebody has to get tested first. Um, the second is sort of looking at hospital capacity. And this could look at number of beds, number of ventilators, the actual staff at hospitals, so first responders are actually highly at risk for acquiring COVID-19. And you know, we can't take care of people next month if our first responders and healthcare workers are getting sick today. Um, I also like looking at the percent positive that tells us something about the overall risk in our environment. Like when you go grocery shopping, how many people with the virus are you going to encounter on that trip? And of course, the percent positive is much higher than what we'd see from just a random sample of individuals at the grocery store or at the beach or on our daily walk, because people getting tested, many of them have symptoms is a reason why they're getting tests. But we'd like that number really, really low so that um, we have a confidence that the virus is very low in our communities. Um, what I think is missing from some of the metrics is actually how quickly is are the tests being performed and how quickly are people getting their test results and also how 
quickly as contact tracing performed. Sometimes I see if it's done or not, but I don't know how quickly it's being done. And that's, that's really critical that we want to get contact tracing done really within 48 hours of somebody presenting some symptoms. And I'd also like to know what we're learning from contact tracing, so a, a feedback loop. I'm an engineer, so I always see feedback loops everywhere. Um, but you know, our risk management plans need to constantly be adjusted and fine-tuned based on what we're learning because we're still learning so much. And it would be nice to know in, in detail where people are getting infections or where we think they're getting infections. And that information has been a little um, not so forthcoming when I've been looking for it. It looks like most of the uh, infections are occurring indoors and in crowded spaces, um, as you might guess. And um, but usually they're grouped into different bins, so it's hard to know: is it more restaurants? Is it more going to the gym? Or is it, you know, at the grocery store? So typically we don't see too many infections at the grocery store, but ideally we'd like that those that number of infections to be zero when we're doing things that we really need to do, um, like buy groceries. Yeah, you bring up this really important point about the availability of information, especially during this time. And recently, the Trump administration has said that hospitals are no longer going to be reporting information to the CDC, but rather uh, the administration. What does that do to academia in this sense? Well, it's not just academia. It's all of us that are looking at these numbers. I mean, your risk management plan is only as good as the data that you use to inform it. And so having that early source of data is really important. And it's important for so many first responders as well as healthcare agencies to be able to access that data because it does feed into a lot of other processes used to manage risk. Many businesses are open, many healthcare facilities are open. We're all trying to do our best uh, and we really need that data to make a difference kind of turning our attention now towards the MLB, aside from contract negotiations that seemed to be at times, you know, reluctant to resume, a 67-page health protocol has been released about testing and tracing and involvement in MLB. What's the MLB's plan and where does the modeling fit into all this? I think the plan's up to 101 pages at this point. Um, So it's quite a plan, but I'm actually pretty excited about the plan, or at least I was initially, because, you know, our lives are not going back to the way they were. And it's a fact. It's hard to think about sometimes. There's some things I might not be able to do, like go to the symphony for a while and and a baseball game. And the bottom line is all of us sort of need one of those 67 or 101 page plans to live safely in this world that we have with the pandemic going on. So, Having said all that, I did kind of view this Major League Baseball as a microcosm of, you know, what life should look like returning. Um, In terms of the Major League Baseball's plan, they do have a lot of resources behind this that maybe we don't have in our personal lives or even our employers have. So there's an opportunity there to really learn from baseball. And as somebody who really likes learning about risk management, I was kind of excited about that opportunity that might exist in baseball, but not in other industries um, kind of returning. So I was really curious in particular about learning about how they're going to manage some of the risky parts of baseball, which is, as I see it, travel with the team and locker rooms. The actual game, I think, will be mostly safe, but you can't just assume that. 
And to manage all these risks, there are literally hundreds of things they have to do differently. And probably very few of them are window dressing. I mean, it's, it's pretty daunting to think about everything that they can do. But having said that, Major League Baseball has the resources to, to manage some of these risks. The plan is pretty interesting and involves changes to the game itself, as well as changes to the stadium, locker rooms, like they can't really shower in the locker rooms, um, no spitting while watching the, uh, the game. They can't sit in the dugout because they'd be too close together. And uh, it even has some guidance for how they should do their laundry at home, uh, which is pretty interesting. That is really interesting. I'm, I'm wondering how uh, the first baseman and the runner are going to stand so close. I, I do too. I do too. The upside is that we could potentially learn about, you know, maybe some things aren't as risky as we thought, or some things can be done safely with the proper precautions taken. And it will be interesting to see what turns out from all of this. They're really not trying to take a lot of risks in Major League Baseball. It's a very much layered approach. We know players are going to test positive. That's doesn't mean baseball shouldn't return, but we really don't want to see that exponential growth during baseball. We don't want to see transmission from player to player or player to staff or staff to player. And so that's what that 101 pages is about is to reduce their overall risk, but then to reduce, you know, a couple players testing positive from becoming a reason to have to end the season. Yeah. And what's the role of like trusting the players and all of this, like asking them to stay safe and be transparent about where they're spending their time, uh, who they're working out with outside of the team. There, there must be like a lot of uh, mutual respect in that sense. Yes. You have to ask a lot of the players to manage their personal risk. If we look at how a player could acquire the virus, it's going to most likely be from outside baseball because there are fewer restrictions than when they're coming to work and practicing or playing with the the team. And there will have to be a high degree of trust there, Um, but they also need to be compliant because we're here in uh, a second wave of the virus and there's so much risk in communities, especially Florida. It's really hard to imagine um, even players being fairly careful not uh, not having a few that won't get the virus. The NBA plan is a little bit different in that they have a bubble and we can get into that late, later, um, but it really does take a much more active role in managing that risk from the outside. Yeah, I was just about to ask you actually about the NBA. So what is the difference in uh, plans of attack between the MLB and the NBA? I think they have very different plans of attack that are both very appropriate for the sport. There's much more inherent risk in playing basketball. There's, uh, it's, they're both contact sports, but there's a lot more contact in the NBA. It's played inside in, in crowded spaces. There's a lot of running around. Um, what there, there is still running around in baseball, I understand, but there's, it's just a lot more physically active, which can lead to those uh, aerosol particles that... Um, that that players breathe. And so they have dealt with this risk of understanding that there probably won't be minimal transmission risk between players during baseball, but there might be a much higher risk between players in basketball. And so they've had this bubble and players really have to come and live in the bubble, not leave, right? So they have a bunch of restaurants that they can attend. 
to really reduce that outside risk. And I was intrigued and happy to hear Adam Silver say that their plan took into account that there would be some players that would test positive and they felt that they could absorb it. Any good plan is going to be able to absorb a few players testing positive. Um, a good risk management plan shouldn't be so fragile that everything will break down if one player tests positive. Yeah, and with these, the MLB and the NBA experiments, are you, just in your own prediction, are you predicting success at all? I mean, it seems like they're taking a lot of precautions to make sure that it all goes well. And definitely, I think that there is motivation on their part because there's definitely millions and millions of dollars of profit on the line. Yes, I was much more optimistic a couple months ago when the number of cases was uh, each day was a little bit lower than we have right now. I see three areas that I'm a little concerned about. One is that some discretion is being given to the teams in making specific decisions. You can contrast this with the German Bundesliga, which just said, you know, we're going to make all the key decisions, recognizing that maybe individual teams don't really have the expertise to manage um, some of the risk. I think it's probably best to give the teams a little less discretion uh, in this case because it's a pandemic. Uh, the second area of concern is with contact tracing. Uh, Major League Baseball is going to test every two days, which I think is totally reasonable. Um, testing every day would be overkill. The risk from one day to the next test 48 hours later is going to be pretty low for any individual player and it might take a day or so to get the test results back. Um, but the plan looks like it's going to rely on local authorities to do some contact tracing. And with so many cases in communities, contact tracing, which is very labor intensive, um, is pretty overwhelmed. So it's not really clear if relying on the communities to do some of that work and the contact tracing is reasonable in the situation. Uh, I would have preferred to have the, the leagues, uh, Major League Baseball in this case, provide some resources for contact tracing so that, that it can be done in a timely manner um, and, and always be done consistently uh, before there are more infections uh, throughout the league. So that con uh, concerns me a little bit. And then the third is just having community spread throughout the United States, frankly, at this point, but in particular, uh, Florida and also uh, Texas and Arizona, although things seem to be getting a little bit better in Arizona. Um, the system seems will work if very few players acquire the virus from the outside. And when there's so much community spread, the overall risk just increases. And while the leagues can absorb a few positive cases, you know, they may be asked to absorb many more than they can handle with the current situation. Yeah, all definitely really important things to think about. And we also need to be thinking about them when we are talking about the NCAA. How might keeping the Badger football and basketball teams relatively safe, and I'm putting that in air quotes from COVID-19, be different than the MLB or the NBA or the NHL? Yeah, there are a few really notable differences. I actually have a student athlete doing some research in my lab right now, and he would tell me that uh, he really wants to get out there and compete. And, and they all do, right? 
um, but they'd like to be out there and compete in a safe environment and the player risk tolerances vary. So I want to acknowledge that um, I'm an athlete myself. <laughs> and so I can relate to, to all of that. Um, but they, they don't have uh, players unions or bargaining power that they professional athletes might have. And so um, and that's concerning in this situation because there's so much risk without the corresponding uh, power to make sure that that risk might be balanced to match their personal risk um, preferences. Um, there's also going to be no bubble in NCAA sports um, like there is for the NBA so that um, there are really differences in their environments that might be much more difficult to manage. These players will be going to class and many of them will be online. So maybe that won't be such a huge risk, um, but it is a challenge. And the resources are completely different. A lot of schools may not have the opportunity to manage the risk in like the home environment that professional athletes have. Some of these students might live in campus housing. They have roommates typically, um, and lifestyles are very different. So I see all of this as making NCAA sports more risky especially from the student athlete point of view um, than professional sports. So I'm a little wary uh, of uh, college sports returning. As we're kind of winding down with our time today, for good and for bad, we now have some time series data on COVID-19. What are we learning about risk and what can we do in this moment to flatten the curve? Well, I think there's a few things we can learn, especially as we look worldwide, and that there's several different approaches that can be taken to flatten the curve and contain the virus. Um, you know, we haven't really achieved that in this country, but I think, you know, definitely we know that we need clear, consistent federal, state, and local policies to adopt plans. Taken from baseball, like we all need 101 page plans to manage the risk in our everyday lives. And we need public safety leaders and our government leaders to, to help make this happen. Um, having said that, there are three key features, I would say, that will help us flatten the, uh, flatten the curve and contain the virus. One is the virus is really driven by super spreader events. So these are inside events that are crowded, close contact, and in particular, uh, poor ventilation. Most with the virus don't transmit it to anyone else, even without necessarily uh, taking proper precautions, which is interesting. So if we can avoid large gatherings, which could be going to the gym, indoor parties, going to the restaurants and bars, um, that will make a big difference. And local and state governments um, can do a lot to make sure that those spaces are managed properly. I do advocate wearing face masks, especially inside at least. When I go running and biking outside, I don't wear a mask and I keep my distance from others out there. Um, wearing a mask isn't, it's kind of a drag. It's not always fun and it's definitely not convenient. I've forgotten mine uh, early on and I you know, didn't, didn't feel right about going inside. So I, I, I like to sew. So I sewed a few different masks that have different patterns. So it would be a little bit more fun to wear a mask. And I was able to make them a little bit more comfortable uh, and fit my face uh, better. So I encourage consistent wearing of masks. And the third component is something that we really can't do too well on our own. And this is more aggressive contact tracing in isolation. And here we really have to rely on 
mostly the local resources for contact tracing. Um, and then that, that needs to be done very quickly, as I mentioned earlier, within 48 or even 72 hours. And then if we can isolate people that are um, positive for the virus, then we really stamp out that virus from being transmitted from that person. And that's really how we contain it. And so I'm a little concerned about the contact tracing capacity right now. Um, and hopefully, and that will improve. The contact tracers are, are all new to the job and they're learning a lot. And hopefully we'll see that, um, that improve so they'll have another opportunity to contain the virus and turn things around. Yeah, all super sage advice. Uh, is there anything else you want to cover today? I could talk all day. I'm a professor, but I think we'll stop there. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a pleasure. I'm sure a lot of people are going to find uh, all this information extremely helpful in their daily lives and uh, when they start watching the MLB and NBA. Thanks for having me. For more information regarding the podcast, please visit policy.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc.edu. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom COVID-19. Stay safe and take care of each other.